0: This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of, you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life, life, life-saving. This is the first uh, opportunity we've had to to do a live podcast taping. So if I seem extra nervous today, it's not only because of my guests and their rock star status as scientists, entrepreneurs, but all of you here is very intimidating. You know, I'm I'm feeling a lot of pressure right now. Um, But that being said, you know, really um, thrilled to uh, conduct today's session, as you know, Portal is really trying to lead the way in Chicago and other emerging ecosystems to try to connect the dots and try to catalyze and build on the great work that's happening in our academic institutions. And you know, what we bring to the table is a, a market view, you know, thinking about this from a venture capital perspective, how to invest money, how to invest the equipment and the space into talented teams that have great ideas that they're trying to translate from the lab bench and ultimately to try to serve a patient you know, that, that, that has a disease across a range of different types of debilitating diseases. And today's conversation will be another um, uh, exciting example of two individuals that are uh, walking on that path, making a difference in patients' lives um, based on their scientific discoveries. Um, so um, as we get underway with the taping, I'll do some brief introductions, and then we'll get right into some of the conversation and the Q&A that goes into the Lab Rats to Unicorns uh, podcast. And as we know, the focus of the podcast is to really try to tell the story of the the navigators, the the individuals that are pioneering the ideas, that are taking the risks, that are doing the heavy lifting uh, in identifying a new... Uh, treatment, a new diagnostic tool, a new device, a new method that can help patients at the end of that journey. As we know, it's a very long and arduous and expensive journey to get to that uh, point in time. And what we really are trying to aspire to do with the podcast is tell the story of the individuals behind that science and that journey so that more outside these walls, we all care about biotech so much. We're totally into it, right? But there's a bigger community out there in Chicago and in the region that needs to care more about some of the work that we have underway, particularly up and coming ambitious scientists that are maybe in grade school today, in high school in college. And we hope the podcasts by telling the stories of the individuals behind the journey will make an impact that will get more people into biotech. So with that, we will get underway with the, uh, the overall podcast. So today uh, we have the great privilege of being joined by two exceptional guests from Northwestern University. Um, you'll notice I did wear my purple shirt today um, just to make sure that we honored the, uh, the institution. Um, but first let us introduce Dr. Richard Silverman. He's an esteemed medicinal chemist and a dedicated educator who holds the title of the Patrick G. Ryan Aon Professor of Chemistry. Dr. Silverman's research focuses on the design and development of pharmaceuticals. And he's a notably the creator of the blockbuster drug Pregabalin, sold under the brand name Lyrica. He's also the founder of Akava Therapeutics Inc., a company committed to bringing innovative treatments to patients. And we're going to hear a lot more about that company uh, during today's discussion. Um, We're also joined by our second esteemed guest, um, she's a trailblazing neuroscientist. Dr. Hundi Osdenler, an associate professor of neurology at Northwestern University. Uh, Hundi is dedicated to unraveling the mysteries of neurodegenerative diseases with her research centered on understanding the cellular and molecular mechanisms underlying motor neuron diseases, such as ALS. She's also a passionate advocate for raising awareness and funds for ALS research. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to focus on their journey as scientists, learn a little bit about them as individuals, and really as a centerpiece, talk about ACAVA Therapeutics. Um, I'm really excited today, too, to be joined by co host So uh, Kevin O'Connor uh, is a noted and experienced patent attorney uh, with a focus on biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, and medical devices. He provides legal guidance on all aspects of patent law, including due diligence investigations, patent counseling and prosecution, strategic management of patent portfolios, and opinion preparation. Um, he's got a strong academic background in neuroscience. Kevin brings a unique perspective to his legal work, uh, authoring 21 peer-reviewed journal articles, and has presented his work at various national and international scientific meetings. And prior to uh, him joining the legal profession, Kevin worked at the Molecular and Cellular Pathobiology Program at Children's Memorial Research Center here in Chicago, where he conducted research on pediatric inflammatory diseases. So welcome to my co-host um, and our guests uh, to our podcast today. Why don't we um, jump right in, if we could. Um, um, Rick, if you could begin the conversation and tell us uh, a little bit, if you could, uh, about Akava.
1: Okay, so Akava Therapeutics got started because of my frustration, I think, with uh, licensing uh, other uh, uh, projects that I had from my laboratory. Um, I have a a molecule actually that was licensed uh, for infantile spasms that uh, the company brought to phase one clinical trials. It was successful. A physician in New York uh, had a, a child with infantile spasms that uh, couldn't be treated by any, anything that was on the market already. And he saw I had a, a drug in clinical trials, so he filed an emergency use IND, which we've all heard about over the last few years, unfortunately. Um, and it was approved. Uh, This child, seven years ago, took this drug and it worked for him. And this child's been taking this drug now for seven years, successfully. Well, the company ran out of money. And so that drug never got into phase two clinical trials, and there are a lot of children out there with infantile spasms that really could use this. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a real frustration. I had another drug also that uh, was out and uh, the company just changed direction. And so then it didn't uh, proceed further. And so I'm talking to my sons, complaining to them about uh, these issues. And they, um, they say, well, why don't you start your own company and then you can decide what happens and when it happens. And I said, I don't think so. I have a full-time job already. Thank you um, at Northwestern University, doing more than I should be doing. Um, and so uh, they didn't give up on me. And after about a year talking to a friend of mine who's a CEO at another company, who said that he would help help get things going, uh, my sons convinced me. Okay, I ought to start this company and then see if I can move some of the projects in my laboratory uh, into clinical trials so that's how it got started that's a great origin
0: story what's the uh, uh, the background of the name of the company I'm just curious
1: brew for inhibition
0: okay
1: all of the projects in my lab are related by That's the only term they're related by because I I work on neurodegeneration and cancer and and other things, but they're all inhibition of something, either inhibition of enzymes, inhibition of cancer, or inhibition of protein aggregation. And so I figured let's pick a term that defines that.
0: Love it, that's cool. Can you talk a a little bit uh, about the stage of development uh, of the company so give us a little bit more illustration of kind of where the company um stands right now is is this a a, a, a product that you're you're moving kind of into uh, preclinical development or just give us some sense of kind of where the where the company is uh beginning its early work sure
1: so the first asset from my laboratory
0: uh was one
1: that really advanced thanks to Hyundai Özdenler um, and uh, this is a, a, a drug for ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Um, uh, we've done all the preclinical studies. Uh, we um, are currently writing the IND. We hope to file the IND next month um, and follow up with uh, clinical trials. And... Um, at the moment, we are looking for a CEO for the company. Uh, I, I really am grateful to the director of operations that we did get, who's phenomenal. She came from Big Pharma as director of operations and then smaller companies. Uh, that's uh, Olga Jaczynski. And then uh, thanking also my son, uh, Philip, who uh really manages uh everything in the company he's my managing director um
0: sounds like he wears a lot of hats and he's and being your son as well one yeah, of those hats yeah, yeah he's good. <laughs> well to talk a little bit about you know your your role and also a little bit about you know some of the scientific pursuits that you have and how it also kind of uh is interwoven um into akaba
2: so um my Connection with uh, ACAVA started with my collaboration with Dr. Silberman. And after coming to Northwestern, um, I established a research lab, which focuses on the biology and pathology of upper motor neurons. So these neurons reside in our brain. They play a role in the initiation and modulation of voluntary movement, And these are the neurons that degenerate in ALS patients. But because brain is complex, they really ignored this uh, upper motor neuron component of ALS. There are other diseases related to upper motor neuron pathology, like spastic paraplegia, primary lateral sclerosis. These are all rare diseases, but important diseases once you have them. And then of course, the spinal cord injury, because the long-term paralysis in patients, the spinal cord injury uh, patients, is because these upper motor neurons, uh, axons, are cut and then the neurons are dead and then there's no more um, connection from the brain to the spinal cord. And even though the problem was so um, imminent and important, there were really no tools, no um, avenues to investigate the cortical component. So the first time I came uh, to Northwestern, I decided to build the reporter line. So we made the first reporter line in which the upper motor neurons are GFP, are fluorescent. And that's very good because then you can actually see them among all other neurons and cells in the brain. So you can actually bring more cellular and cell type specific investigations to any question that that you may have. And at the time, Dr. Silverman uh, generated numerous compounds and they were reducing protein aggregation in different cell lines. And then we said, oh, can we actually Study them within the context of upper motor neuron pathology, within the context of uh, motor neuron diseases. That's how our collaboration started. And uh, because I've been working on survival requirements of upper motor neurons, I know exactly how they treat or how they behave or how they respond to treatment. And the compounds that Dr. Silverman has generated and characterized in his lab were pretty phenomenal. Like, I mean, you know, we had to make tiles to take the full picture of the neuron. And I told Dr. Silverman, I said, these are pretty good, these are really good. Maybe we should give them in vivo, like to, not in tissue culture, but to live mouse. So it's, we did experiments after experiments after experiments and it kept getting better and better and better and we begin to understand how and why and what's happening. So um, I think, uh, you know, we are on a <clears throat> good trajectory trying to understand, uh, you know, why they improve the health of the upper motor neurons. But the fact of the matter, matter is that they do improve the health of diseased upper motor neurons. And that's uh, an untouched territory. And that's an important uh, finding for the fields, especially for upper motor neuron disease patients.
0: So if I understand um, correctly and kind of that relationship um you know, uh, Dr. Silverman is making the molecule, but you're coming at it from the um, measurement perspective, the exactly. the assay, if you will, if I'm using the right word. And so that it's a very uh, important symbiotic relationship. On one hand, you know, um, uh, Professor Silverman is making the drug and then you're testing the drug. And I think that's a very good, obviously, combination in getting a company going, Um, to be able to, you know, make the material that ultimately could be that ideal uh, molecule to treat a patient someday. But you need some early results, you know, in vitro and then in animal studies like you've referred to before. Um, Rick, I wonder if you could just, you know, talk a little bit about uh, the the word uh, medicinal chemistry or that phrase. Um, It embodies a little bit about what you've just explained, but for our broader audience, um, what what does being a medicinal chemist mean to you?
1: So medicinal chemistry is a science that deals with design and discovery of uh, molecules that uh, can treat diseases and then uh, bringing them further as medicines uh, into the clinic. And uh, it involves a lot of different aspects uh, with regard to design. There's um, computer modeling, there's uh, uh, target proteins that uh, you might isolate and study with them. Uh, And then synthesis of a lot of molecules, uh, screening them against uh, various assays that uh, you're interested in looking at um, their properties, whether it's uh, how stable they are in cells or animals, uh, do they penetrate the brain, if you want a CNS uh, pharmaceutical, um, and how how toxic they are. And so it, it's a large field that that uh, encompasses a lot of and different areas that are important to making molecules that hopefully will someday become medicines.
0: And what got you into the field to begin with? What, was there any trigger early on as a kid? Uh, did you have a chemistry set? Did you, did you light something on fire? Did you bake a cake? Or what, what, what was it that got you excited about you know chemistry and beginning that journey in the first place?
1: You must have uh, been in my household. (laughs) Because that's exactly what happened. So when I was eight years old, my brother was 13. uh, We decided uh, we'd like to do some experiments and got a chemistry set from our cousin. And uh, this, we're talking now in the 1950s. So chemistry sets in the 1940s, 1950s, you really... You could do some really dangerous (laughs) stuff. You would not be able to to have any of those experiments done these days in in anything. And so we uh, took it up to our laboratory, which happened to be our bedroom, and um, opened up the the, uh, experiment book. And the first experiment was called the Invisible Flame Experiment. Now the chemistry set, of course, came with a Bunsen burner and matches and uh, things that you could light up. And so it said that you know you should put alcohol in there, and of course, the set came with alcohol. Uh, and you, so you put it in there and lit it, and they said, "You'll notice that in the sunlight, you don't see the flame, uh, And it's because it burns cleanly and it's hot, and so it's like a light blue but you don't really see it. That is until the flame catches the curtain on fire. (laughs) (laughs) And then you see it. And so we had these big flames coming out my brother and I are running around trying to put it out. And of course, mom walks up right about then, what's all the commotion here? And she saw this curtain on fire, ripped it down, stamped it out and said, that's the end of your chemistry set. (laughs) boys." So for 5 years all I could think about was wow the chemistry is so cool. And it wasn't until my bar mitzvah actually that uh, 5 years later that I then was allowed to have the chemistry set
0: back and that got me on the road for it. <laughs> That's great. I love that story. And um you know beyond you know the safety of the home and kind of moving past that incident um, I, I'm just switching gears a little bit you know just kind of jumping back and forth between you know that experience and then you know beginning to pursue you know the pathway to understand chemistry better and ultimately get to where you are today um, there's there's other elements to getting a drug to the marketplace even beyond the science so I want to maybe flip it over to Kevin for a minute and talk a little bit about you know once you come up with that invention or you know you You've run the reaction and you've found the molecule, or you've optimized, and you've got the right properties. You've found that it's you know has the right toxicology profile. It distributes to where you're trying to get it. Maybe, like you said, it's it gets into the brain if it's you know going after a disease like ALS. Um, but then you have to protect it, right? You need, a, you need a patent to be followed. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of you know filing a patent, and how that how that follows the journey? Of a molecule and why you do that, so that it ultimately can become a drug. Yeah,
3: certainly. So, so in the the especially in the small molecule spaces, I'm sure you're, you're aware, the the patent protection is is pretty critical, given the long time frame it takes to discover the compound, to put it through uh, laboratory testing into animals, into human clinical trials, and the expense that's associated with that. So, to to allow for that exclusivity. Uh, afforded by the the patent protection is is, is really critical uh, to recoup that investment both you know from the, the startup or maybe a, a future partner collaborator uh, in terms of a, a big pharma company and, and so you know I, I, I think that journey is is um, well established for um, a lot of companies but a lot of times we see that that's where startups may fall down because they don't appreciate early on uh, the importance of IP. And and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how you've worked with Northwestern and then uh, moving forward with establishing your company, how that's going with the IP situation. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I mean, if we go back to when uh, Pregabalin was invented, uh, Northwestern had a, a very small technology transfer office. In fact, there was the director and the associate director. And they didn't really know what to do with this and how to proceed properly. And so they got a lot of really good advice uh, that allowed us then to move forward, get licensed, and, um, and uh, really advance the, the technology transfer. And as a result of that, th- that office has grown tremendously. It's now I think just an amazing uh, innovation uh, entrepreneur uh, office uh, and they're very proactive. They go out there talking to faculty to see what their inventions are uh, and they try and um, encourage all the faculty to to patent whatever new inventions that they have. And so they're very willing to do that and um, not only are they willing, they're excited when you you do that. Um, The hope, of course, is that uh, one of these inventions then will uh, become licensed or a new company will start and then we would have to license the patent from Northwestern and so this is a way then they're investing in companies and in licensing and uh, that's where they're generating the the resources to to make this office uh, the
2: quality that it is. This episode is sponsored by Neil Gerber Eisenberg. Neil Gerber Eisenberg is a global law firm founded in
0: Chicago committed to helping companies large and small navigate the challenges and opportunities of a rapidly changing business environment. The firm is a trusted advisor to startups, growth companies, and entrepreneurs assisting in their business structuring, financing, intellectual property services, and other legal needs. With over 30 years of valued client partnerships, the firm meets unique client needs with personalized service and collaboration, delivering thoughtful counsel and practical solutions for every matter.
3: And do you think the, the the model of the professor, inventor, starting the company is, is, a, is a good one, a good way to go? Because again, places where we, we see these, these things move fairly quickly when you file a patent application um, and, and to have the university support that all the way through until they find uh, the appropriate uh, licensee uh, sometimes can take Time and, and a lot of times those inventions die on the vine because they're not able to find a licensee. So when the, the inventor, professor, is the, the founder of the company, I think that's uh, almost the best case scenario where
1: these things can really take off. Yeah, yeah, so that's why they encourage that. And we have quite a number of startup companies at Northwestern. Uh, and um, they, they do what they can to, to make this successful
0: with the growth of that office and the you know encouragement by the university to do more of that uh type of you know company creation and licensing and invention activities i'm wondering if rick you've noticed over time you know from when you um you know first began your career uh to to current date how has the culture changed at northwestern uh and how have the uh scientists uh, changed in terms of their uh, nature of their desire to have impact through this type of activity? Have, have you noticed a, a change in that direction?
1: No, oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I've been there 47 years. And um, back in those days, in the old days, uh, it was sort of frowned upon to try and uh, uh, get patents and license uh, your work because the, the the belief was in academia we're there to be scholarly to to make new science and, and be creative and we'll we'll uh, devise something that companies can use then and uh, that's where the money will be made in the companies but it's sort of foolish to think that because. You know, if you don't patent your work, no company, of course, is going to then follow up on it because there's no patent uh, on it. Uh, And so slowly, uh, I think faculty uh, have been convinced that uh, this is something really important you have to do uh, as an academic uh, and as part of your scholarly uh, pursuit is if you do have an invention, that you need to patent it to protect it for uh, anyone that does want to, to use that. And the, year by year, as we hire more faculty, we find that they are excited about entrepreneurship. And uh, I see you had Shana Kelly here recently. We just hired her a year or two ago uh, and her husband as well. Uh, and uh, many of my colleagues now have startups and are uh, entrepreneurial. And so it's completely different from when I
0: started. Yeah. Your comments, Hande? What are your perspectives on that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so uh, I would say that as a new faculty, I think universities really pay attention to faculty originated new ideas, inventions, patent applications, even initiation of new companies. And I see more and more that you know some very competitive institutions in their, let's say, a tenure decision, they ask the company, how many patents applications do you have? Have you started a company? I mean, those questions were not asked before in tenure decisions, right? So I think the other um, perspective is the um, growth in translational medicine. Because we were just curious kids doing some research, right? But now, it's not really curiosity-driven, it's mainly translation-driven. And, you know, there are questions, problems, bottlenecks, you identify them, and then you develop solutions, and then you have protection for your solutions, and then you try to work with the best team or form the best team or collaborate with the best people to reach the or touch the finish line and i think touching the finish line is now the quest you know it's not like publishing 10 papers getting that many grants it's basically have you helped that patient have you solved their problem have you really uh, you know brought an in- invention to the solution to become a solution and i think that's also changed our perspective and how we do research as well because the innovation part was not present for example in IH grants now there's a huge big innovation part there's a big impact part so yes you're doing good science but what is the impact what is the innovation what is new and what is it they can that you can do that's going to help others I think that's very important, and that's changing the field as we move forward.
0: Well, and, you know, I we had a chance to hear a little bit about Rick's fire incident to get him started on his career, but can you talk a little bit about any early catalysts that got you interested uh, in becoming a neuroscientist? What was the drivers or triggers that ultimately propelled you down that path?
2: Yeah, mine, mine is a sad story, though. Um, I was going to become a plant by a, Sci- biotechnologist. I've completed a dual master's program. And I, I, I'm, I was born in Istanbul. I'm Turkish-American. And I received the best master thesis award. I was the first person who cloned the gene in Turkey. Imagine. Wow. <laughs> I'm that old. It's amazing. <laughs> um, then I came to United States to the PhD program for, you know, studying cell biology and plant biotechnology. But my brother passed away. He had stroke. This is his watch that I'm wearing all the time. So he was 23, he had stroke, and I did not know anything about the brain. I did not know why neurons die in the brain, how neurons die in the brain. My biology knowledge was nucleus, gene transcription, you know, molecular biogenetics. So then I switched fields, and I, I was just like a sponge. I tried to learn as much as I can So I completed PhD in three topics, cell biology and neuroscience. I received numerous awards. Then I moved to Harvard Medical School neurosurgery department. And I was a postdoc for one year. Then I became a Harvard fellow the next year. And um, I became, um, I received the Harvard uh, HCNR, the Harvard Center for Nervous System Repair Award. And I started working on you know, the upper motor neurons, because for me at first they were just cool cells, right? Cool cells in the brain. But then when I saw an ALS patient and an ALS patient that actually has that disease, predominant upper motor neuron disease patient, oh my God, they were not, poor, you know, cool cells anymore. They were just like, those are the cells that die. And when they die, this is what happens to human So then it wasn't an experiment anymore. It became a passion. And um, they recruited me to Northwestern to become the director of the second Les Turner ALS lab. And I was only 35. And that was the first upper motor neuron lab in the United States. So I became the founding director of that lab. Wow, that's amazing. And since then, we're trying to understand why these neurons degenerate, what is the molecular mechanisms behind it. And I try to bring all my expertise in my molecular biology, you know, chemical engineering, cell biology, anatomy, neuroscience, neurosurgery. And at the time I was thinking like I'm wasting my time. This, you know, I could have gotten just one PhD and be done with it with like publication of one paper. But I think the more that I learned, uh, the more um, versatile I have become in different aspects. And to tackle complex diseases, you really have to have a broader vision. And I'm thankful to all my you know colleagues and friends and teachers uh, who invested in me. and and of course, working with Dr. Silverman is amazing. Uh, and I feel very lucky and humbled. And hopefully you know we will be able to move forward to make a difference in the lives of people uh, who lose their you know motor neurons and then hopefully we'll be able to make a better life for them.
0: I mean, you've demonstrated through your journey, you know, it's a story of uh, resilience and acceptance to change. And, you know, just uh, almost the ultimate entrepreneurship to leave one country and come here and begin again in a new field. Yeah. What, what advice do you have, you know, for the listeners and for the audience around tools you use to, to be resilient on a long journey?
2: Definitely. Thank you so much for the question. Uh, my father was actually a businessman and he ran a business. And it was me and my brother, and my brother was an uh, artist, painter, and and I was a nerd. (laughs) And he wanted me to run the company. And I didn't want to run the company. I just wanted to do more and better science. So I told him that I want to be a scientist. I want to come to the United States. And he said, no. He said, you have to show to me that you have the mindset of a businesswoman if you really want to go outside of Turkey. I said, how do I show you that I have the mindset of a businesswoman? And why do I have to? I'm just gonna be a scientist. Who cares about money? Who cares about the economy? Who cares about this? And he says, no, 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 no. At the end of everything, it's gonna come down to investments, money, economy, and you have to know it even as a scientist. So I started my own company when I was 18, just to convince my dad that I have the mindset of a businesswoman. <laughs> and I did so well in my company, so well that, you know, I paid all my school debts. I purchased a house for my mom. I purchased a very good car for my dad, you know, and then my dad said, you're not going anywhere. I said, why, (laughs) you know, we made a deal. He says, no, 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 no. You're such a good businesswoman. You have to stay and you have to run the company. I said, dad, I really want to be a scientist. I want to go. He said, okay, you're going to go, but you're going to come back. You promise. I said, okay, I'm going to come back. I promise but then my brother died. Mm. So when my brother died and I was at Harvard and I was on the newspaper, Turkish newspapers, when I became a Harvard fellow, then he said, okay, you know, you can stay. Mm. I think there's passion in you, I'm not gonna force you. And you're right, resilience is like the grit, like, you know, because the passion comes with your determination. If you're determined to find a solution, it doesn't matter what they throw at you, right? So you can turn Lem, lemonade like what was it lemons yeah. to lemonade, lemons lemonade. Yeah, exactly you can <laughs> even uh what was it the new experiment that you can actually make electricity with lem, lemons did you see that mm-hmm. so it's even more cool so uh i think it's it all depends what do you want to achieve in life mm-hmm. what is it that you want to achieve in life and what is it that you can and you just stick to it
0: well back to the back to the business mindset and maybe uh, um you know, transitioning and hearing uh, Rick talk a little bit about, you know, starting Akava, you are, you know, taking your sons' and colleagues' advice to kind of manage your own destiny, kind of take matters into your own hands and, and be active. Um, and now, of course, there's a risk in, in taking that. You're going out on a limb and you're moving forward and because you believe, you know, that you've got something there. Um, how has that experience in moving in that direction, that's different from your first experience around an earlier invention around Pregabalin. Can you maybe compare and contrast how you feel now about the steps as an entrepreneur and taking it one step further beyond just the invention and licensing? And now it's, you know, your, your company. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a very different feeling. Uh, you invent something and it gets licensed and then that's the last you know about it. And it's company takes over and does what they do with it, but you're really not involved with it. And, um, you no, know, this is like your baby. You want, you want to be involved and you want to know what's going on. Uh, and, uh, it can be difficult. Uh, but, um, uh, starting a company and uh, a lot of aggravation involved but also uh, a lot of enjoyment uh, when you see that there is progress and it's because you've done something to move that forward and you can follow the progress from day to day uh, and have some excitement or some uh, unhappiness for a bit uh, but uh, you just see it potentially helping people yeah.
0: and patients at the end what would you say and I'm interested in comments uh, Kevin's follow-on question here too around the maybe the what are the early big challenges that you faced that you mentioned aggravate the word aggravation and and I can definitely you know feel that being an entrepreneur myself too. this there's, there's something about there's always some anxiety because you're always thinking about yeah. tomorrow. What's incomplete? What's next? And, you know, of course you're riding the highs as those uh, as you're seeing good results, but then there's always these setbacks along the way back to back to resilience. Um, but if you could just comment, is there any like key um, barrier in the beginning uh, or a frustration in getting a company off the ground? Trying to find the
1: right people to To be able to do that, and and so, some frustration, and you know, not at, at first, maybe not finding the right person, uh, and then, eventually, do because otherwise I would not be able to take this company ahead. I certainly don't have time to do that. You got a day job too, right? Yeah, <laughs> neither time nor knowledge to take it forward, and so I have to rely on these other people. And then, you know, when it gets to a point like now, when we're moving into clinical trials, we're starting to raise funds uh, for that. Uh, And, you know, we're just hoping that people out there uh, can see the value in this and that there's really nothing out there for ALS patients that's effective. And I think we've taken a a new approach, thanks to Hyundai Özdenler, uh that uh, is different from everything else mm-hmm. that is uh on the market or in clinical trials and we want to give these als patients uh, hope yeah. and a chance and I, I mean every day i get an email from either a patient or a relative saying how can we get into a clinical trial yeah. can i buy some of this stuff now you know and they just can't do that yeah. um and so we just want to make sure that we have the funds to bring this forward as rapidly as possible to help these people. I mean, ALS, uh, from diagnosis, the average lifespan is two to five years right. after diagnosis. And so they really don't have time to wait for this to yeah. go through all these clinical trials and
0: everything. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think your, your response really...
3: It drives home the point that this, uh, particularly the life sciences space, is it's a it's a long road to get these things to market. It's not uh, de- developing an app that's immediately released. It's it's a, a long road, and it requires you know th- things that the portal here's providing the wet lab space, the advanced equipment, things like that. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, how you're making that transition? Um, using university resources to going forward with either your own resources or partnering with uh, CROs to get some of these things accomplished?
1: Yeah, I is a virtual company. So we have no labs. Uh, uh, all the um, discovery occurs in my Northwestern lab. But once we find a molecule that we want to bring forward, uh, translate into clinical trials, it then would be licensed into Aqaba and it no longer is part of uh, Northwestern. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I don't have uh, laboratories for the company. We are using CROs. We have about 10 consultants in every aspect that you need for a drug to be moved forward. And the consultants are the ones that are really guiding the CROs. and making sure that uh, the experiments are done properly and uh, we're getting uh, the information that we need. So it's, uh, again,
3: all about sort of picking the right people to to surround yourself with to get these things done.
2: Um, But you can still perform scientific experiments to understand the mode of action, you know, what is the mechanism behind it, because it's not like only... Uh, questions that companies can answer because this, this, there are also scientific questions behind uh, each discovery and every discovery. So I think collaborations with scientists are important, and our lab plays a role, but numerous other labs play roles in that as well. Because I think uh, as we move forward, we will really need to know, um, you know, the impact that this compound makes, potentially impact impact that it makes in human and in human, uh, especially patients, right? So you may know that there are numerous clinical trials uh, initiated uh, for ALS, but about 35, 36 of them consecutively failed. And that created a lot of frustration in the field of ALS, but now it's picking up. More companies are interested in ALS and more investment is done, uh, is made in ALS. And I think it's because there's a change in our thinking, because initially uh, people thought if the SOD1 mouse, which was the most characterized and studied mouse, if you can extend the lifespan of the SOD1 mouse, that's good. That means you can extend the lifespan of the human Go into clinical trial. But then it failed, after failure, after failure, after failure, they said, hmm, maybe extension of mouse is not really the answer. So we need to find something that really translates. So then rather than comparing mice with human, a different species, people realized uh, how similar our neurons, our cells are, even though we are in different species. So the motor neuron in a mouse, in a well-characterized mouse, this motor neuron, is very similar to motor neuron in human. So then if this disease or those, you know, these motor neuron diseases occur because motor neurons degenerate, can we make the motor neurons happy? And now more and more uh, drug companies try to understand the cellular basis of disease, and then uh, they shift focus from mice to neurons. And I think that's one of the unique strengths of the company, because first, it's the upper motor neurons in untouched territory, and movement starts in the brain. If you're thinking about any motor neuron disease, a brain would be your target. And that we actually have the cell lines, the cells that are fluorescents and that translate to human. So there's more um, belief that the findings would be translatable more to human rather than you know survival in the SOD1 mouse. I think that's our unique strength uh, as we move forward for the clinical trials.
0: Well, you mentioned something uh, very interesting too, just talking about kind of investment trends. Um, you know, Several trials had failed, and so investment dollars start to move away from the space when that happens if they don't feel like the dollars going in are producing an outcome that's ultimately getting a drug to the market and treating patients. But you mentioned more hope in that regard, that things are moving in a direction where companies are regaining interest. Is that driven to some degree? Well, what's it being driven by? Is it the science we know more about, like you've just explained with the mouse uh, neurons uh, being similar to humans? Or, um, you know, is in the bigger picture of things, you know, companies have the opportunity to go after a whole range of different diseases, cancer and respiratory diseases, autoimmune, why do you think um, the the next uh, 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 opportunity may be in diseases of the brain like ALS?
2: Wonderful question. So I think the uh, shift in perspective comes uh, due to uh, multiple changes in our thinking. First, it's an unmet need. There is no drug out there which effectively cures ALS or any other motor neuron diseases. There is no cure. Period. So that unmet need is a big uh, attraction. Second, scientific scientific uh, achievements. We did not know, for example, lipidomics, metabolomics, RNA-seq, you know, we did not have single-cell single, single cell omics. We did not understand why this neuron is vulnerable versus the other neuron is not vulnerable. We did not understand mechanism, we did not know this. So without knowing, it's very hard to articulate the targets proper, uh, you know, properly. Now we know these, so the science actually drives innovation. So science is very good third there are uh, complexities but complexities are not seen as challenges complexities are ch- seen as a chance to do better like you know yes this is complex but we have this better model yes this is complex but we can do this yes because, so then people want to override the complexity the complexity does not deter them and also collaborations Let's say ALS centers in the United States, there were only, I don't know, a handful of ALS centers in the United States. Now there are more than 150. Mm -hmm. Even in Chicago, we have about three of them. And then there is uh, ALS center consortiums, like a NEALS platform, that when you start a clinical trial in one state, in one city, the same clinical trial may recruit patients in many other states. So then, recruitment is not a problem. And then there are also international collaborations. When you start a clinical trial in the United States, you may recruit from Europe, or you know it's vice versa. And uh, I think the world started becoming together because they realized the importance of the problem. And the other thing is uh, patient advocacy. We have an immense group of patients who are vocal, who really demand. And they follow the science. They know what's good in the field, and they sense it. They know it, and they support it. And that's a game changer. For example, the emlytx drug got approval, and now toforsin is uh, waiting for uh, approval from FDA. And even though it didn't have meet clinical outcome, the biomarker outcome is. Uh, is good so now maybe for the first time Fda is going to approve a drug not based on clinical outcome but 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 by biomarker outcome and I think that's a huge change in how we see disease yeah. and that's how biology drives innovation and I think that's why these are very exciting times
0: yeah and and following on with that um, investors like clarity and visibility and some predictability and science is of course very difficult to predict and regulatory approvals are difficult to predict. But with some of the changes you've mentioned, the biomarker being acceptable for approval, starts to bring more money into the space too, right? Because people see that there's a pathway forward and that, you know, drugs can be developed based on the new science and the new knowledge and start to have greater impact. So I think that also starts to feed on itself and becomes, you know, an area of you know, prioritized in investment um, given those, those successes. Um, you know, as we think about the, the, the broader landscape, we talked a little, uh, quite, quite a bit about, um, you know, translation, academic entrepreneurship. Can we maybe focus on ecosystem? So what are your thoughts, each of you, around um, Chicago's current ecosystem and its opportunity, if you look over the course of the next decade?
1: Yeah, well, I'm really excited about it. Uh, you know, until relatively recently, it was the two coasts—east uh, coast, west coast—and companies in the Midwest would start in on the coast because there just wasn't facilities here. Uh, there wasn't the the, uh, the motivation, maybe, uh, but. Uh, organization like yours, this Portal Innovations. This is really going to spark uh, much more entrepreneurship in the Midwest, particularly in Chicago. And um, I think this is really uh, much needed and, and uh, encouraged. And uh, we have the resources here in Chicago. We have the talent. We have the, uh, the, the know-how. Uh, we just need uh, uh, some vessel to get it going. and thank you
0: for getting that going. Well, yeah, I mean again, just as an entrepreneur, my observations of the the evolution of the of this ecosystem and just to your point, uh, Rick, you know now it now is kind of an inflection point. But I think a lot of it started you know, a decade ago where you had the universities really investing very heavily to attract people like you yeah. to the university or retain people like you because, of that impact and then impact there's alignment now or a greater alignment now where there are more you know w- w- what I would call Cambridge backable faculty in the ecosystem today because of those efforts to attract those individuals and to keep them here you need the market to pick up and there needs to be things outside the university that start to you know move those ideas and companies and and technologies downstream but i wanted to ask each of you maybe one closing question if i could rick uh my question to you is um what what's your over your career uh or 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 present day what's your favorite uh chemical reaction
1: (laughs) oh wow favorite chemical reaction all right yeah uh well i guess i have to pick a nobel prize winning one and that would be the click reaction.
0: Uh, that's a good name. I love the words around. The reason I ask is more around some of the terminology and the words behind the reactions. They're the coolest names and phrases you could think of. So right. carry on, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because that has shown
1: so much application in all sciences. So, you know, it started out in chemistry, organic chemistry. Uh, And now biology, you do so much in biology using this reaction of an alkyne with an azide um, and uh, in engineering now, in material science. And so it's pervasive throughout all
0: of science. So I I think that's so cool. That's a great answer. I know there's some chemists in the room, too. I'm sure they have their own opinion as well. But that's a great answer. Uh, Hyundai, uh, in a little different direction, you know, kind of look at the next decade um is is the brain the next horizon you know as as you think about you know the breakthroughs when we think about so many great advances have happened and are continuing to happen in cancer right you think about immunotherapies and cell therapies and car t and um many uh, things on the horizon that are addressing cancer in, in in a more progressive fashion than 5 10 15 20 years ago What about the brain and what are your hopes or thoughts or expectations around key drivers for the brain being the next horizon?
2: Absolutely, I think indeed brain is the next horizon. I honestly truly believe that within the next 10 years, maybe at most 20 years, we will reveal the complexities of the brain at a cellular level, at a molecular level, and we will understand why neurons degenerate in the brain, why why they're unhappy, what makes them vulnerable, what is the path that they take uh, to degenerate, and we will develop uh, therapies to make them feel better, to make them uh, be better incorporated into the circuitry and be more functional. So I really believe in science. I see the growth in science. It is going towards that direction. And uh, coming back to Chicago being the hub, I think it is really the windest city and it's not because it's the wind that we see. The the city comes from the name because it's the wind of change. Hmm. And Chicago is really the city of change and Uh, It may be the new kid on the block, but sometimes the best kid is the new kid on the block. (laughs) So it gives us a chance to not repeat the mistakes that other kids have made. It gives us a chance to learn and not repeat again their mistakes and be our unique self and uh, be ourselves. And I lived in Boston for such a long time. And I think there is a distinct cultural difference here. Uh, And That's also another unique strength, I think, because um, for example, uh, when I was in Boston, if I wanted to meet with a colleague, I would say, you know, can, can we meet? And I have a question, said, of course, that would be wonderful. How about next month for like five minutes? Mm-hmm. But here in Chicago, if I write an email to a colleague, like, you know, can we meet? He says, yeah, how about tomorrow? Let's have a coffee. You know, it's very different here. The people element is very different. And I think uh, that's going to uh, put Chicago on the map in a very strong way. And I'm happy to be in this environment.
0: That's a great inspirational answer. Well, i want to close by thanking each of you um, for the contributions you've made and the contributions that you're making now and, and the impact that you're making well into the future. And um, it's exciting also to think about the influence you're having on the next generation of, of scientists, you know, that are part of your labs now and that are following in your footsteps that are um, that, that have a more paved path to you know, replicate some of the things that you've been able to accomplish in your own journeys and still a lot of work to do, as we know, a lot of challenge and complexities, like you said, but that's creates opportunity as well. So um, I want to thank my co-host for the show today. Kevin, thanks so much for your insights and questions and comments and uh, for the sponsorship um, for, from uh, NGE today. Really appreciate that. So um, let's uh, let's um Let's put the wind in the sails of the windy, windy City and let's go get out there and get to work.
2: Exactly. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments feedback ideas if you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing
3: that is all goodbye